Welcome to SGTM Talks. We hope you find this encouraging and inspiring. Thank you. Uh, it's, a, it's been a good week. It's been a good week because I heard, I heard, a, I discovered a new joke. Do you want to hear my new joke? Oh, Lizzie, look, you're just like you can't wait, can you? Yeah, let's pitch it like this. I'll, I'll say what you've got to say, and then you ask me. Okay, so what were the lion and the witch doing in the wardrobe? So you ask me. It's none of your business. None of your business. It's none of your... Welcome to week two of <laughs> Women of the Bible. What did we look at last week? Come on, let's get some interaction here. What did we look at last week? And we looked at how she was patient and humble. Patient and humble. It's cold in here, isn't it? I'm really sorry. Please, please feel free to put your coat back on if you want to. Today we're looking at Ruth. And uh, we're going to have the scripture come up on the screen. I'm going to read from Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them, and they wept out loud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, 
because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, by Tess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for setting the scene for us in this beautiful chapter of Scripture. Raises a lot of questions, Lord. The stuff that we want to think about and talk about and mull over this morning and through this week. I pray, Lord, that you'd be able to highlight for us just some things today that we can then take away and put into practice. Speak to our hearts and minds, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Big plans, big strategies, big schemes. Do you have them for your life in this new year? In, uh, is a big sense of destiny and, call, and dr- calling driving you into the wild unknown of 2024? I'll be honest with you, this might come as a disappointment. I don't. I don't. I'm soon to be crashing into my 56th year on this planet. And uh, I won't be doing that with some huge overarching sense of destiny and calling. I, I have no real sense of um, God's architecture for my future. I'm just doing life one day at a time and try, try and do my best. One thing I've been reflecting on recently is how much my prayers, my simple, very simple conversations with God are turning very naturally to, not to the grand designs and the, and, the, and the big dreams, but rather to the simple prayer, Lord, just, Lord, make me better. Make me a better father. Make me a better son. Make me a better friend. Lord, I want your goodness in me. I want to be a better man. It's quite a small vision, I guess. Not exactly world-changing, is it? I just want to be good. And one thing of which I can rest assured, though, is that my Heavenly Father wants that as well. He wants to develop that character in me. He wants me to be, believe me, he's longing for me to be a better man. But he's being very patient with me. As we looked at with Mary, the mother of Jesus, last week, the development of our character is so crucially important to God. And one of the reasons that our Father in Heaven is so keen that we become better people is that a great source of change in the world, the big vision stuff, if you like, is simply that wellspring of goodness, the Spirit of Jesus welling up and overflowing in each of our daily lives. And so whether we feel we have some great vision for our lives or not, I do actually believe that the greatest combined contribution that we can make to our generation, to our nation, is to be good. To be good. And as I typed that sentence, I made a deeply Freudian, deeply theological Freudian typo. I put the greatest contribution that we will make to our generation, to our nation, is to be, quite simply, God. But that's it. You and I are called to be God for others, to be Jesus to the world, to be Christians, literally little Christs. And one of the ways that happens is not necessarily the big strategic stuff, 
that you know you sit down with a board of governance and a massive budget and work out how you're going to impact the world but rather simple patient quiet expression of goodness and that is exactly what we read when we open up the four chapters of the book of Ruth. I encourage you to go away and pour yourself a coffee this week and read all four chapters. Uh, you can even have some cake and um, get stuck into it in greater leisure. At greater leisure, there's so much to say here. The book is so rich, so many levels and facets we could look at. We could look at the fascinating historical setting of the whole story. Set in the time of Judges, roughly 1200 to 1020 BC, from the death of Joshua to the coronation of Saul as king of Israel. One of the most dark and rebellious periods in all of his, Israel's history. A time when they systematically failed to live as a witness of God's holiness and goodness, instead giving into increasing godlessness. We could take apart the book of Ruth as a wonderful work of literature, it's a classic short story or even a play. Well over half of it is dialogue. There's this wonderful almost Dickensian use of names to reflect character and plot. Often with great irony, it's initially set in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, but there was no bread. The people are starving and so the patriarch of the family has a decision to make to take his family to Moab, 50 miles away, where a God-fearing Jew simply would not go. But there's no famine there. That's Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. Again, deeply ironic because he doesn't act like it. He turns his back on God's laws and takes things into his own hands to survive the famine. We could go into the theological themes. The redemptive work of the sovereignty of God clearly at work somehow in and through the suffering of Naomi. The parallels between the saving by Boaz, as if you read on in the chapters that follow, and God's saving of us all. But the one thing I personally couldn't get away from when reading this is that what we see in Ruth, what is at the heart of her effectiveness, and the reason she is so famous as a biblical heroine is that this is not the story of huge plans and overarching strategies. There's no great sense of calling and destiny as we read along. All that we see is goodness. Goodness, softly spoken. And I find that so encouraging. And I encourage you with that. It's so nourishing to us. Okay, quick synopsis. Elimelech and Naomi take their two sons, Marlon and Kilion, and they take them to Moab and they take forbidden wives from the Moabites. After 10 years, they still have no children. This family have come to Moab to survive the famine, and yet most of them die. It could not be any bleaker. Naomi is left with nothing. She decides to return to Bethlehem. She tells her daughters-in-law to return to their own mothers and remarry. Orpah reluctantly leaves. However, Ruth says, no way. No way. I've started so I'll finish. I'm staying with you. I don't care what that means for me. And so those two women return to Bethlehem and it's the time of the barley harvest. And in order to support her mother-in-law and herself, Ruth goes out into the fields to glean, to pick up what's not been picked up in the harvest. 
And the field she goes to belongs to this man called Boaz, who's kind to her because he's heard of her loyalty, her goodness, her patience, her determination. He's seen and heard of that, the way she is with her mother-in-law. Boaz is a close relative of Naomi's dead husband's family, and as such, he takes up the obligation to become kinsman redeemer, thus rescuing them from poverty, giving them a hope and a home where they had none before. It's great, but what can we practically, none of us is going to be gleaning this week, none of us is going to be going off, you know, sort of 50 miles to to fix things. It's great, but what practically can we take away from this book? What's in it for me? Well, for starters, what strikes me is that the goodness in me is directly related to the grace of God flowing into me, my receptivity of it. This is essentially a book about grace, unconditional love, love freely flowing. Grace could be Ruth's middle name. She works to provide for Naomi. She gathers barley for Naomi. She's mindful of Naomi with her leftovers of roasted grain, even before she's had a meal herself putting the other first. All that she does is focused on looking after Naomi. And then later she's at it again. We read of Ruth's kindness to Boaz. She's a wonderful display of goodness in as much as she's so keen to help others, even when she is in great need herself. She's not giving out of surplus. She's giving of completely of herself. Two major theological themes in the book of Ruth are redemption and hesed. And hesed means, apparently, loving kindness. Isn't that lovely? Loving kindness. Consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of our Father God. In short, grace. It's free. It's unmerited it's lovely. Hesed, the loving kindness, the unearned generosity, the grace of God, it changes everything. And it's a wonderful aspect of the goodness that we see freely flowing from Ruth. I love how she honors her mother-in-law's age. She cares for her accordingly. I believe you can tell when there is not too much goodness in society, when one of the first casualties is respect for the older generations. I don't know about you, but I worry that we've lost something in the UK. Maybe I'm wrong. I look around the world and see other cultures that seem to have a greater respect for their elders. We would do well to import that back into our shores. We need a revolution. And the church should be at the forefront of this revolution to show a better way. I think we do that here. We could always do it better. May this be a church where we are known for our deep respect, honoring of the elders in society. And what's perhaps even more extraordinary is not only is Naomi much older, potentially a burden, all of that, but she's Ruth's mother-in-law. Now, I'm not going to, to... fall for the temptation to crack mother-in-law jokes this morning. Please let me tell just one generic in-law joke. What's the difference between in-laws and outlaws? Outlaws are wanted. 
you can use that one, Cameron, as you step into your marriage. Um, now, before we go, let me make clear that this is not the picture of Naomi that we have in these scriptures. Naomi, despite her suffering, is humble and gracious and open and releasing and full of gratitude to her daughters-in-law. And that must have been a huge part of why Ruth stays with her and goes out of her way to care for her. And so Ruth bows to Naomi's wisdom, and she follows her sage advice. And it's Naomi who has the idea of how to go and approach Boaz, this distant relative who then takes up his responsibility to become the kinsman redeemer to this family. Ruth sees the goodness in Naomi, and she bends into it. She's humble. She's humble, and she hears the wisdom of age, and she commits herself to it. It's as if she can see that you get good at goodness by listening to it and learning it and copying what you see in others. I want to be like Ruth. Her goodness is both unconscious and undaunted unconscious and undaunted. Ruth's goodness is humble and it is brave. She is an amazing woman and it is an honor to study her today. And the statement that sums this up when she stands listening to Naomi and responds, she says, this is in chapter three, she says, all that you say, I will do. It's very simple. But she's taking it on board and she's rolling it out. Ruth is this extraordinary blend. She's both deeply humble in that no task is too menial, and yet she is fearless and daring. That, when I read to you, when Naomi says, girls, just, just go back, go back to Moab, please, be done with me. How does she, this kind of needs like the, the, the soundtrack from Gladiator underneath it. She says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And there's Naomi going, okay. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. She's so strong. Nothing is going to get in the way of her expressing this commitment, this loving kindness. She's devoted her life to Naomi's God and as such to the way of hesed, the way of goodness, the way of loving kindness. Everyone sees it and then that has a world-changing effect. What I love most about her is that she's good but she doesn't even know it. There's nothing thought out and deliberate to her goodness. There's not a veneer of goodness with some Machiavellian subtext. Neither is it the use of goodness, even for some higher purpose. It's so unconscious and it's so beautiful. It's just as with Jesus, simply who she is, her natural reaction to circumstances. You see this character coming out of her. And that breeds this reputation about her that Boaz himself says, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Got some echoes there for us, that classic text 
in Proverbs 31, a wife of noble character who can find. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That sounds like Ruth, doesn't it? it? Sounds like a description of Ruth. It's a scripture in praise of developing a reputation of goodness of character. That's what Boaz sees in Ruth. That's what makes Boaz want to redeem her and take her as his wife. There's no mega dreams in her of changing the world, no meta narrative of greatness. But what happens as a gentle, life-affirming, natural consequence Ruth has a son. His name is Obed. And Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David. And Jesus of Nazareth is born in that lineage, the line of David. So what do we read at the beginning of Matthew 1? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the mother, this Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. She did not go looking for that. She's a foremother of Jesus Christ. It's an extraordinary story, truly a life of destiny, but all she was doing was being good. Beauty creating beauty, kindness spawning kindness, all of it a natural consequence of character. When we seek after goodness with our tiny prayers and our, our bending into the goodness of God, when we look at the one who is the source of all goodness, when we reach out to draw near to God, the God of all goodness as our source for life, goodness then is ultimately what will flow out of us. Let me close with this. I love the writer David Brooks. In his book, The Road to Character, he coins a phrase that I love. It so perfectly sums up Ruth. And the phrase you will hear is passive activism. And this quote could have been written as a description of Ruth herself. When we express the goodness and life and beauty of God, instead of responding in kind to the ugliness and chaos and sadness around us, we have no idea of the impact of it. Without even knowing it, unconscious and undaunted, we can change the world. We are called at certain moments to comfort people who are enduring some trauma. Many of us don't know how to react in such situations, but others do. In the first place, they just show up. They provide a ministry of presence. Next, 
They don't compare. The sensitive person understands that each person's ordeal is unique and should not be compared to anyone else's. Next, they do the practical things, making lunch, dusting the room, washing the towels. Finally, they don't try to minimize what's going on. They don't attempt to reassure with false saccharine sentiments. They don't say that the pain is all for the best. They don't search for silver linings. They do what wise souls do in the presence of tragedy and trauma. They practice a passive activism. They don't bustle about trying to solve something that cannot be solved. The sensitive person grants the sufferer the dignity of her own process. She lets the sufferer define the meaning of what is going on. She just simply, she sits simply through the nights of pain and darkness, being practical, human, simple, and direct. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to SGTM Talks. We hope you found this insightful and inspiring and can tune in again soon. In the meantime, try out our website, sgtm.org.